You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody. This is Christina Previtt here with another edition of Wake Up Call, the podcast. And Fem Squire is with me today. Fem Squire, Elise Bowie, who is the founder of Elise Bowie Family Law in Seattle, Washington. Her firm practices exclusively divorce and family law and estate planning. Thank you for being here, Elise. Oh, thank you so much, Christina, for having me. I love being able to chat with you. Oh, well, we have been planning this for quite some time. We've had the universe interfere a bunch of times, but we're finally doing it. Yes, so thank you. And um, I, I don't want to go into like the, the rabbit hole we just went down before we hit record. We were talking about Ghislaine Maxwell, the trial when Jeffrey Epstein and El Chapo came up. And so we're, we're going to keep it exciting though. I think this interview is going to be really good, but Let's start in the beginning, Elise. I, I usually start out with where did you go to college and what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? But I kind of want to go a little before that. Like, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Orleans, lived in New Orleans my entire life until Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005. That is cool. So your parents were raised there too? Well, my mom was actually raised in Texas for the most part. And my dad was like an army brat kid. So he was, you know, traveled all around. My grandfather was a colonel in the army. So they traveled around, but they met in New Orleans. And so their entire marriage and life was in New Orleans. That is so cool. I love New Orleans. What was it like? What was it like growing up there? Oh, I love New Orleans. New Orleans is so fun. I didn't realize like until I moved away, I kind of thought every place was fun, like New Orleans, with fun food, fun people, fun music. Then when I moved away, I was like, whoa, this is not quite as fun. So, I mean, New Orleans just has a vibe to it that I think is really like none other. And I mean, you know, the food we ate, I mean, just even at my school, like our regular school lunch was, you know, they'd have like red beans and rice and jambalaya and shrimp creole. Like I thought that was normal lunches. And apparently, you know, we didn't have rubberized chicken nuggets like a lot of schools have. Yeah. Well, we used to get our, our big exciting thing was pizza every Friday. The, the little rectangles, those yeah. little squares, <laughs> which I thought were great at the time. Now, not so much. Did you guys get those? No, not really. We, I mean, our big thing was Monday, red beans and rice. You know, that's a typical New Orleans thing. You have to eat every Monday. And um, we just had amazing cooks. And the one thing I loved about, we had donuts. We had a little break every morning at 10 o'clock at our school. I went to a private girls' school. So there were donuts for sale and they were warm. Like literally, it was kind of awesome to be able to eat a warm donut at 10 o'clock every morning. That is nice. Well, I mean, you can't go to New Orleans without going to Cafe Du Monde. Oh, gosh, no. I mean, beignets are a huge part of our family. Like our, we have a tradition on Christmas where we make beignets every Christmas morning. And um, we love beignets. I mean, I have one son who's kind of mastered beignets because it's really hard to get them to fluff up perfect like they do at Cafe Du Monde. Like a lot of times I'll make them and they turn into a blob, but he really 
rolls out the dough and does all the right things and has the oil, the perfect temperature. So they puff up perfect, just like Cafe Dumont. Well, maybe he should do a little video tutorial because I've heard a lot of people will buy the stuff that they sell there and they take it home and it's just not the same. It's not. No, it, but it's a process. He has been learning and practicing for years. He and his friends, I mean, he would always have friends spend the night and I'd go to my kitchen and literally be covered in beignet mix, powdered sugar. It's like this thick layer of these 13 year old boys who had been, you know, rolling out the dough and doing all this stuff. But I mean, he was pretty hardcore in learning his beignet making skills. It's in their blood. Yep, exactly. So do you go back there often? Do you have family still there? I do not have family still there. No, we all left with Hurricane Katrina. I mean, I do have a brother who lives in Mississippi, so he's the closest to Louisiana. But no, we all left with the storm. But we do go back fairly often. My husband's work requires us to go back to Louisiana a fair amount. I mean, we probably have gone back, you know, three times a year since we left. And um we're right now looking at getting a place for Mardi Gras and we have young adult kids now. So there's six young adults. And we thought how fun would it be to rent like an Airbnb where all the kids could come and go for a week of Mardi Gras and be able to really enjoy it. And so I think we're going to do that. Oh, that you would probably know how to do it the right way. I feel like Mardi Gras is one of those things where like the locals would be like, Oh God, it's Mardi Gras. It's going to bring all the spring breakers and you know, the, all the tourists, but it's a tourist spot anyway. Do, do the locals think of it that way? Or is it a big thing for you guys too? Oh no, we love Mardi Gras. I mean, Mardi Gras is like totally awesome. And I mean, there are people that are diehard Mardi Gras goers, you know, and they get their special place on St. Charles Avenue. They wait, you know, get their ladders up so their kids can sit up high. And I mean, those of us that are from New Orleans often have ridden in in the cruise. So like we've, you know, ridden on floats and done it from that side of the, the aisle. And Mardi Gras is amazing when you ride on a float and get to throw all the beads and, you know, people do some crazy things. Yeah. Yeah, I was just about to ask you, you know, I don't know if we're, you know, this tight yet, but what have you done for beads, Elise? (laughs) What happens in New Orleans stays in New Orleans. I would not say. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Um, I think we can all, uh, you know, read into that. We, you let your imagination go wild. <laughs> so, um, so I feel like, you know, in New, I'm near New York. I'm in New Jersey. And no, my people, they do not want to go to New York Times for New Year's Eve. Like, you know, so many people are just like, God, no. It brings all the tourists. It's going to be horrible. (laughs) Nobody wants to go there. So this is very different what you're describing. Oh, New Orleanians are a breed of people. They are so proud of their city and their heritage and their history. I mean, my friends who are like, you know, local and have lived there forever. I mean, they love Mardi Gras. Like, I mean, I don't know if you know Ernie, the attorney, Ernie Spenson, I mean, he is this amazing New Orleanian. And like, even during COVID, I mean, they were out on his porch, like they had Mardi Gras, like up and down the street, there's bands playing outside his house. I mean, New Orleanians love to party. Like, 
any opportunity to throw a party and to be festive. I mean, it's kind of been a joke because everywhere I've moved has been much more reserved. Like I lived in Minnesota for a while and now out here in Seattle, Washington. And I mean, out here, it's very reserved. And I started hosting these wine parties here in Seattle and would invite people. And people were like, I've never been invited to a party like this. And I'm like, that is so odd. We just are party New Orleans people definitely love to throw a party. We love hospitality. You know, we love food. I mean, just when you have babies in New Orleans, like your whole neighborhood brings you dishes of food. And I mean, nobody's bringing dishes here. Like when I was, our neighbors were having a baby and I like go to bring them something. They were just completely like, what are you doing? Like, Yeah. Like, what I do you want? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, it's totally different. Oh, well, I'll have to come to one of your parties, Elise. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think we really should go to New Orleans together. Oh, so yes. Oh, my God. Of course. I yeah. Mean, yeah. Because then, I mean, I've joked for a long time. I should do a retreat in New Orleans. And, you uh, should. Oh, yeah. For sure. I would go. Okay. I would totally go. Okay, okay. So you heard it here first. I got yeah. the exclusive. There's exactly. going to be a retreat. Well, we'll keep you posted on the details. So we'll work that out. <laughs> Um, so tell me what was going on around Hurricane Katrina time that you had to leave. Oh my girl, we would need like three podcasts for that. <laughs> Hurricane Katrina, obviously, you know, we, we New Orleanians thought it was going to Florida because those hurricanes are always going to Florida. We usually are not very clued in. And so at the very last minute, um, it started coming to Louisiana and we were like, oh, this is kind of a big deal. And um, at the time, I had one of my best friends who, I mean, it is a very long story. It should be a Hallmark miniseries, so I won't go into all the details. But I mean, she was um, going through chemo. She was a divorced mom with six children. She ended up in the ICU in a coma. So there I am with her in the hospital. And my ex-husband at the time, he was my husband, he called the ICU nurse and was like, I need to talk to my wife. And so they put him on the phone and he's like, Elise, we need to evacuate. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, we don't evacuate. I was like, I've lived here my whole life and I've never evacuated. Like, what am I evacuating from exactly? And he was like, oh no, this is serious. Like you should actually turn on the television and look at, you know, what they're, they're saying. And I mean, the mayor was like, you know, if you can get out of the city, you need to get out of the city. And I was just like, that is unheard of. I mean, I'd never, I never evacuated for any storm my entire life. So, you know, that was pretty shocking. And we didn't think his family would be so keen on us showing up. So we just didn't tell them we were coming. So we just evacuated. (laughs) Where are they? Where's his family? In Georgia. They're in this rural town in Georgia. So we just, you know, showed up on the doorstep with the kids, the dogs. And (laughs) it was like... It was kind of interesting at first, but you know, I'm like, you got to roll with this. It's a hurricane. Did you just get out of there in the nick of time? We did actually. We actually left Monday morning, super, super early and the storm hit and then the levees broke Tuesday morning, you know, and that's when the real floods happened. And um, yeah. And I mean, there was so much to be done, though, because of my friend who was, you know, in the coma. Her ex-husband is an emergency room doctor. So trying to get her kids all settled because he was going to be working at one of the trauma units in the area during the hurricane. 
I mean, it's such a long story, you know, what happened. And um, she ended up waking up in the middle of the storm, had no idea the hurricane had hit and, um, and ended up leaving the hospital against medical advice. I mean, all kinds of craziness, all kinds of craziness. So then we had to get her resettled in Texas, get her children out to Texas. And yeah, it, the Hurricane Katrina was a wild, wild time for sure. You must have been so devastated watching it from television. Oh, it was it was very surreal. I mean, and the thing that was really, really interesting was um, my ex-husband, I mean, he was my husband at the time, he had settled a case. He's an attorney and he had settled a case. And, you know, the settlement had come in the Friday before the hurricane. And at that point, we had no idea the hurricane was coming. He called his client and was like, you know, okay, we need to, you know, meet, divvy it up. You know how it goes when you're like a personal injury attorney, you got to do all that and transfer the money, make sure everybody gets their part. So they had agreed they would meet on Monday. Well, Monday never came. And so there he is holding this check that needed to be deposited. All of our banks went down, all the cell towers went down. So we're there in Georgia and he's like, I need to go open a trust account like in Georgia. Like I have no license in Georgia, but I need to figure out how to do this. I can't be holding this money and not have it in a trust account. You know what I mean? Like that's the rules. So he actually drove to Atlanta, which was like four hours away to get, you know, dispensation to be able to open a trust account, even though he didn't have a Georgia license. So he could deposit this money. Well, then Tuesday morning, we're watching CNN. His client's wife is on CNN talking about his client's death in Hurricane (gasps) Katrina. He died in the flood. Oh my God. So it was, I mean, it was all kinds of wild, you know, I mean, just fiscally for us, it was a really bad situation. And, you know, obviously having to deal with his client, the client's wife. I mean, it was, yeah, Hurricane Katrina was just, I mean, it was hugely disruptive in all kinds of ways. I don't even remember what year that was. Do you remember what year that was? 2005, August 28, 2000. Wow. We remember the date and everything. What were you doing for work then? At that point, I was not working. I was staying at home, um, homeschooling my kids. I mean, I had four kids at the time from like three to 11, I guess, or three to nine years old. And so, um, and David was working. He was the sole breadwinner in our family at the time. Oh God, that's, that's such a crazy story. I wish you could go into all the details. We might have to just have another podcast just to talk about that. I mean, does it seem like it wasn't even that long ago? Oh gosh, no. I mean, literally every year when it comes around, I'm like, I mean, it's really so much of it is still so fresh. And interestingly, I have my daughter, my oldest child, my oldest biological child, she recently had a massive flood in her apartment. She lives in DC, you know, some contractor like knocked the sprinkler and talk about trauma. I mean, she and I both were just feeling the trauma of, you know, the whole thing again, because she was literally texting me like, you know, we're about to lose everything. Like, I mean, it was just raining in her apartment and I'm, you know, literally texting her like, remember, take out anything that's irreplaceable. You know, like, and, and she's like, I feel so prepared for this, you know, because of the hurricane. And, and so, but it was really sad because it made me realize, I mean, 
I mean, because these were my young children at the time going through this. And I mean, it's so disruptive because, I mean, they lost everything like that. I mean, all of their friends disappeared. Everyone evacuated to different places and none of our cell phones worked. I mean, that was the thing. And it sounds so silly, but all the cell towers were not working. So you couldn't even communicate with your friends, often for months. And people often ended up with new cell numbers, you know, because wherever they moved, they might have gone and gotten a new cell number. So, I mean, the kids really lost all their people, you know, like that they had had from birth till that point. And it was, it was really traumatic. I don't even remember. Did we have Facebook then? I guess we I don't think didn't. so. Yeah, I don't think we did. Or uh, people would have been able to stay in touch. So that is one of the good things about Facebook is now go. when things like this happen, at least you can sort of keep track of other people. But when you were leaving, when you were evacuating, were you thinking like, oh, it's going to be fine. We'll be back in a few days. Totally. A hundred percent. I mean, we almost left our dog with a neighbor because we were like, you know, we don't want to do this whole big production, you know, and we didn't know if we'd have to stay in hotels on the way, like, you know, traveling with a bunch of little kids can be kind of unpredictable at times, you know? Yes. And a lot of times, so we thought about leaving our dog with our neighbor. And I mean, Girl, it literally, I should write a book on this. Our neighbor is one of the pe- people. I mean, if you would research what's called the Danziger Seven, they were a group of people, mostly police officers, that ended up criminally charged for shooting somebody on a bridge during Hurricane Katrina. And that was our across the street neighbor who we almost left our dog with. He was one of the people. I mean, he had just graduated from law school, worked for the police, stayed on with the police department through Hurricane Katrina and has, you know, just recently been released from jail, I think. Wow. Um, Yeah, it was kind of. So you knew him. Oh, yeah. Like my kids used to feel all safe because his police car was right across the street from our house. You know, they I mean, they always thought it was so cool. His dad was an attorney. I mean, yeah, we definitely knew them. And so if the news came around to ask you, you'd be like, he was such a nice guy. You would have never thought anything like this would happen. Never in a million years. No. Wow. Pretty wild. So it was interesting. You said that you were going to leave your dog with the, with one of the neighbors. So that person was not evacuating then. No, no, they were staying because he was a policeman and he was on duty for the hurricane. And his father is an attorney. He's like an ex FBI guy and he was staying. So we thought, okay, he could watch our dog. And the father was somebody we actually stayed in touch with and could communicate with like by email after the hurricane. And, you know, then all this stuff occurred with this bridge shooting, you know, and yeah, it was kind of fascinating. I mean, like, so what did you take with you? What, because, you know, we, people always ask these hypothetical questions, like if you'd only take three things to a deserted island, what would they be? And I mean, you kind of were in a situation like that. Well, it was funny when my husband called the ICU and I'm on the phone with him and he's talking about evacuating. I was like, well, you need to pack. I said two of everything, two PJs, two swimsuits, two shorts, two shirts, two underwear. I was like, pack two of everything. Literally, I thought we'd be home immediately. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I really focused on swimsuits because I was like, you know, it is summer and it is the South and his family does have a pool. So I thought, okay, the kids will be able to swim. 
But I mean, we packed two of everything. And I mean, eventually, actually, when we went to Georgia, his, the community there in this little town in Georgia where his family lived, they actually donated us like $40 a person at the Goodwill store. And you would have thought my children literally had won the lottery. $40 a person, that's $240 for our family of six at the Goodwill store. We were absolutely living large at what you could buy at the Goodwill store. And we were having more fun buying things with this um, generous donation from the Goodwill store. And so, because I mean, we ended up there for a full year. I mean, oh yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you that. I was we didn't get to that part yet. <laughs> yeah. But um, looking back, do you wish there were was something that you had taken with you? If you had known you weren't going to be back, um, I mean, it's so silly, but it would have been my grandmother's recipes. I didn't. I mean, we had this whole recipe book, and um, mostly, you know, my grandmother had handwritten a lot of recipes and my grandmother was kind of one of those amazing Southern cooks, you know, just really made great, great food. And we ended up um, renting our house out to somebody who lost everything. And so when I finally got back into our house, kind of, you know, once they had moved out and we had decided we were going to sell our house and, and really move, um, I couldn't find those recipes anymore. I have no idea what happened to them. So. Oh, I don't think that's silly at all. I would have been upset about that too. Yeah, I completely lost all of those. And so that was sad to me. Because like we had these Christmas traditions, like my grandmother would make this crab meat au gratin every Christmas Eve. That was just what we ate on Christmas Eve. And it was so delicious and cheesy and wonderful. And I've never been able to replicate it. You know, I try and I you know, experiment, but I mean, hers was just delicious. And that's like one of the recipes I miss the most. Did you ever make it from the recipe and it was good? Yes, beforehand, but I just don't remember what, you know. Keep I trying, am. Elise. I am. Just keep I trying. Am. You're going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get it. <laughs> you have to do this. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Are there any other family members that could, were you able to get some of the recipes? Because I'm a really big foodie. So this this upsets me very much that you don't have these recipes. Yeah, no, because really my mom, I mean, my mom was an only child of her parents, you know, so my mom would have been the one. And at the time, you know, by the time all this occurred, she had had a stroke. And so it was, you know, she just wasn't able to really step in and offer me any help about the recipe. So yeah, it really was just this lost, I don't know, just this lost history in our family. And I'm definitely a foodie. And, you know, it was just, I really cherished my grandmother's recipes because, I mean, she was hilarious. So like some of her recipes, you know, like she would make this chocolate pecan pie and she'd be like, Toss in the amount of bourbon you think is appropriate for the guest list. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It was hilarious. And so, you know, she just was, her recipes had a lot of sass to them. And, you know, and sometimes like she'd be like, you know, cayenne pepper to taste. She's like, usually I do it to my taste, not George's, because that's her husband. But he definitely had a lower tolerance for spice. And so... You know, she was just, yeah, her recipes were really, they, her, she and her personality just came out in her recipes. Well, you have to make your own now. You have yeah, to make exactly. your own book 
And I guess have it digitally preserved too. Because <laughs> we can do that now. <laughs> yes, indeed. Aw. So when did you do you remember when you realized that your your house was things were never gonna go back to the way they were? Oh yeah, for sure. I had actually taken the kids back to New Orleans, me and all four kids, because my friend, the one who had been in the coma, she wanted to come back to the city. She had gone to Texas and really wanted to come back to her cancer doctors there in New Orleans. So we went back and we, the kids and I went down to the playground at the end of our street and they were just like playing. I mean, just doing like normal kid things. And every single person had a story about like somebody who died on the streetcar tracks or somebody who died in a flood at the hospital or And literally it was all these conversations and my kids would come up to me and there'd be somebody talking to me about their dead grandma. And I was like, I can't raise my kids in this. I was like, this is too much. I'm like, if it's me and David, like, yeah, we could deal with this and, you know, maybe actually help. Like, you know, we both were lawyers and, you know, there's probably things we could have done positive for the city. But I thought my kids cannot be raised in this where every single thing is going to be about what happened during the storm and, you know, the, the either rebuilding or not of the city. And so at that point in that playground, I was like, we are not, we're not going to be able to move back here. I remember calling David and saying, you know, we need to figure out where we're going to live because I can't live in rural South Georgia. Like that was a real struggle for me. I mean, where were you? What town? It's called Sylvania. But then we lived in a little town called Rocky Ford because David's family um, his dad is a minister. So they had access to a, a house hooked with his church that he worked at. It's called a pastorum. And so um, we lived there. And so, which was really nice. We had our own space and I was super grateful for that. But I mean, it's a different vibe than New Orleans. Like, I mean, one time I took the kids to the grocery store. I mean, literally there I am with my stair step four children, you know, and I was like, we need roast beef. Like we need to make sandwiches. So I'm like at the deli trying to buy roast beef. And this guy was like, well, ma'am, we're going to have to roast the beef. I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, y'all don't have deli meat. And he was like, no. And so then one of my kids was like, well, let's just make pesto pasta. And so then I was like, okay, so we go look there's no pesto in the whole store. So then I go back up to the the guy and I was like, do y'all sell pesto? He was like, what is that? And I thought, okay, peace out. Like we are not able to live here. I can't feed my kids quickly. What did they eat? (laughs) It was such a Southern, you know, everyone cooked, you know what I mean? Like the thought of buying deli meat was just not a thing. I mean, somebody would buy a big roast and they'd go home roasted all day. And yeah, they might make sandwiches out of it the next day. But I'm like, I got a hungry kids like right now. And it was just, it was very, very rural. And um, I mean, you know, just the, the reality of like, they didn't have integrated churches. Like, you know, I mean, we're talking in 2005. Wow. My father-in-law's church that he was a minister at was all Caucasian. And then there was entire churches that were African-American. And when my children and I would talk about this, like at their dining table, because I mean, my kids were really like, what is up with this? Like, why is this like this? And he would just 
explain that this is just how it is. And I was like, this is just not how it is. Like it doesn't, I mean, I don't mean to diminish that, you know, maybe some of that is, you know, people want it like that. Like maybe they want to be able to worship in a place that, you know, has their own vibe, but it, it felt very um, not good. Sounds like a time warp. Yes. I felt like I was in a massive time warp. Well, I was asking partly because I lived in Valdosta, Georgia for a year. Ex-husband was born. Well, and I was actually in Clyattville, which is a little tiny suburb of Valdosta. So I was really out in the sticks. Wow. That's amazing. That's like pecan capital and onion capital. Well, I remember it was seven miles from the Florida border. And what was very exciting at the time was I don't think Georgia had a lottery at the time, but Florida did. So everybody would drive to Florida to get lottery tickets. (laughs) Why did you live there? Because my mom was a bit of a nomad and and she met people that were from there and they were like, y'all should move down to Georgia. And we're like, okay. (laughs) And so we went. And, you know, at the time, it was like weird to have to change schools and stuff. But... I, I'm kind of grateful for those experiences now because I got to live in Georgia for a year and, you know, see what life was like there. You know, I think you don't realize that people are different in other parts of the country. Even you don't need to go to Europe to experience something different. Just go to a different part of, you know, even the Eastern seaboard, you know, life's different. So I am grateful for those experiences and I had a good time down there. It was a little hard to get used to the weather. Oh, yeah. Because we moved in August. Oh, yeah. Well, that's when we went, too. It is humid and hot. Yes. And I was not used to that. So that, but, but I remember by the next August, it didn't seem that bad. Right. Exactly. You get used to it. And if you have a pool, I find everyone lives in a swimming pool in the South. I mean, that's just kind of standard summer activity you must be in a swimming pool for the bulk of the time and then yeah yeah I just remember it was hot but I remember everybody had fish fries the way that they would have barbecues in Jersey nobody had a barbecue in Georgia they had a fish fry absolutely (laughs) yes indeed I also remember that there was this lady who lived next door to us and she made the most amazing fried chicken I've ever had in my entire life still to this day. And she was to fry it in bacon fat. Yeah. That's the best way. (laughs) So good. I mean, I was always like, what do you do to this? Why is it so good? And then she told me her secret. I was like, ah, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, Southern cooking is so delicious. I mean, clearly it's deadly, obviously. Like we're just an entire culture of people who are going to die prematurely. But I mean, you just cannot get better food than in the South. I mean, I just, when we moved to Minnesota, I was pretty horrified at the food they tried to pass as regular food. I was like, wait a minute, this is what you all are eating. I mean, our neighbor in Minnesota actually encouraged us to eat at Applebee's. And I was like, (laughs) people actually eat at Applebee's? Like, I didn't know that was an actual thing. It's bad. It's, I mean, coming from New Orleans, there is no excuse to eat at an Applebee's. Like, you can find a hole in the wall dump 
that is going to have delicious food. You would never go to an Applebee's. Like, and that was just normal in Minnesota. And I'm like, "Mm, I don't think so. (laughs) So, Well, there's certain places that are, you know, that they live on chain restaurants. That's just what they do. You know, it's just part of the culture. But I'm with you. I can't go to Applebee's. I cannot go to Olive Garden. Oh, gosh, no. No, I am definitely not a chain restaurant girl. I mean, I was definitely raised, you know, you go to the Tiger Mart, you know, like that might, you might get shot and killed at the Tiger Mart getting your fried oyster po' boy, but your po' boy is going to be delicious. Just shoot me after I eat. I want to enjoy it first. And then I will die. Send my kids in one of my sons. And, you know, he'd be like, it's kind of sketch. I'm like, just don't piss anybody off. You're fine. Just get our po' boys. It's all good. You know, it's just a whole different vibe. The food. Well, yeah. Yeah. Now you're really, first of all, you're making me hungry. And second of all, you're making me really want to go back down to New Orleans. Well, our retreat. Yes. Yes. That's right. So. So you said that you stayed in Georgia then for a year. We did. And you went to Minnesota right after that? We did. We literally just kind of put our finger on the map and figured out like, okay, where can we move? I mean, there was some semblance of a decision. I mean, part of it had to do with, I mean, fiscally, we were kind of in a bad way. You know, this was a tough time. And I mean, it, you know, it takes a long time for lawyers to get relicensed. I mean, it's not like all of a sudden you move to Georgia and you can start working. I mean, you have to have the bar exam the right month. You've got to, you know, do all the lead up to it. So when we chose Minnesota for the main reason was because one, they had amazing public schools. So we thought, okay, our kids can, you know, get educated and we weren't going to have to pay for private schools like we did in New Orleans. And two, Minnesota has this massive reciprocity with other states for college. And I mean, we were literally going through any money we had put aside for the kids' college dealing with this hurricane. So we thought, okay, at least they'll have more options than just whatever the state school is because Minnesota has reciprocity with like Illinois, Idaho. I mean, lots of different states, Nebraska, Wisconsin. So um, we thought, okay, that's what we'll do. And um, so that's how we chose Minnesota. And um, well, obviously you didn't stay there. No, we, well, we lived there for five years. And then, you know, my husband and I, because we had, you know, known we needed to get divorced before the hurricane hit. Like we had, you know, started this process and started really talking about divorcing. Then when the hurricane hit, we were like, "Mm, probably not the best time for us to throw a divorce in the mix right now. So we stayed together for those five years, kind of reestablishing, getting everything back, you know, at square one again. And then, you know, once we kind of were all established, I passed the Minnesota bar. We were like, okay, now we can divorce. So then we did that. And then I ended up getting remarried. And so ended up out here. So you got remarried in Minnesota and your husband brought you to Seattle or how did that work? He actually lived in Seattle. I mean, that's a whole nother long story, but he lived in Seattle and, um, and so he he was somebody that I'd known forever. He and his family used to live down the street from us in New Orleans. And they moved away before Hurricane Katrina. Like our kids were friends when they were little. And so um, then when he and I both realized we were divorcing, I mean, we had stayed friends, you know, through the years as families, like after 
Hurricane Katrina, our family went and visited their family. They were living in DC at the time. Um, and so, you know, we had stayed friends for years. So when we both realized we were divorcing, then he came and visited me in Minnesota. And then that was, we've just been together ever since. And, and the rest is history. Yeah. So now we've been married about a decade. And um, so then we ended up with a blended family of six, three girls and three boys. Oh, like the Brady, the, the Brady bunch. I was going to say yeah. the Brady family. Where'd that come but from? <laughs> minus Alice, we so needed an Alice in our lives. Like we have, I mean, so many times I'm like, we really missed the boat without getting Alice. Why don't you have Alice? Are you big, you're big on outsourcing. I mean, if there was a law firm you were running, you would have an Alice. Absolutely. Yeah, we we had our Sandra. I mean, she's like our Alice, but she didn't live in the house. But Sandra has helped us so much. But yeah, an Alice definitely could have been really helpful. So are, are one of the kids, oh my God, I, I don't even remember their names. I remember Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Do yeah. you have any kind of dynamic like that with the kids? No, I mean, we are so lucky, like, because one, our kids did know each other, like the two oldest kids, like Doug's two kids and my two oldest knew each other very well. And, you know, as little people. And so it was kind of, it, it wasn't a huge ordeal for them to come together. And then Doug's daughters, you know, knew Eric, my next one, like they were there when he was born. I mean, I have all these pictures of his daughters, like reading to Eric when she, when he was a baby in his baby book, like Doug's pictures are all in my kids' baby books. Like he would come back to New Orleans and visit and, you know, there he is holding our youngest and, you know, playing games with my daughter. And so as far as blended families go, you know, we just have been really kind of disgustingly lucky, you know, that it worked out really well. And we gave the kids a lot of space and room, you know, to, to blend, like we didn't force anything. We were definitely that family. Like if it was a birthday celebration, we weren't like, okay, well, we all have to go. And, you know, we were just like, we're taking this person to dinner. We're doing this, whoever wants to come great, you know, whoever doesn't great, like, you know, and I think because they were all older, you know what I mean? Like they were teenagers at the time. And so forcing the issue would not have been productive. Isn't it sort of interesting, though, when you look back on things, you know, like Steve Jobs, when we said you connect the dots looking back. If, if Katrina hadn't happened, you wouldn't have moved to Minnesota. Maybe you wouldn't have reconnected with him. I know you said that you had sort of stayed in touch, but I don't know. Do you, do you oh. think? I mean, we're all, spe we're speculating, but do you think that wouldn't have happened that way if you hadn't moved to Minnesota? I definitely think there's a possibility of that, you know, because, um, I mean, Doug and I were definitely of our respective families. Like we were both the parent that was kind of like involved with the kids, you know? So like, even when we were in New Orleans, um, you know, like my ex-husband and his ex-wife, were less involved in the day-to-day -day things, you know, like Doug and I would often, like the kids would get invited to birthday parties together. And so, you know, we might, Doug might be like, okay, you know, I'll meet you at the party. Could you pick up gifts for my girls too? Or, you know, like, so there was a lot of back and forth and his wife actually went to war college. He and his wife are both retired Coast Guard 
um, captains. And so for part of the time, his wife was in war college and they had an au pair there in New Orleans down the street from us. And she was not really good. So his daughters would spend a lot of time at my house. Like I was kind of the- You were the au pair. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, I mean, he had one daughter, she would go to school and, you know, I'd get a little call and she'd be like, Miss Elise, my tummy hurts. So I'd have to call Doug at work and be like, can I go grab Shannon? You know, she says she doesn't feel good. And so like, it was this, you know, really interesting dynamic. And so it was so comfortable, I think, you know, for us and the family, just because, you know, we had been good friends for so many years. And so- yeah, who knows what would have happened? I, I don't know. I mean, I was shocked that he was getting divorced. He was shocked that I was getting divorced. And so, and yeah, and the rest is just history. That's so cool. I love that. So yeah. you had said, and we're bouncing around here, but you had said that you passed the bar in Minnesota. We haven't even gotten to the educational part of this program yet. <laughs> so when when did you go to college? You know, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Where did law school fit into this timeline we've talked about so far? Well, when I went to school initially, I went to Rhodes College, which is a small private school in Tennessee. And I thought I would be a biomedical engineer. Like that was what I wanted to do. Um, I was way into math and all that. But at Rhodes, I got to that, I think it was my fourth semester of calculus. And I kind of realized that I was at the end of my math brain. Like it was tapping out kind of. That's pretty far though. Fourth semester of calculus. You know, other people are like, yeah, I took calculus for about a week and I dropped it. <laughs> yeah, well, That's pretty it, good. It It definitely kind of tapped me out. And so then I was like, I wanted to study psychology and I thought I would go get a doctorate and I I transferred. So I transferred from Rhodes to LSU. I went back closer to home. Um, I studied psychology, totally thought I'd go get a doctorate in psychology. And my advisor was literally just like, I don't know if you want to do that. That's pretty hard. I don't know if you'll get in. He was so just like discouraging. So then I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to law school. Like that's probably easier. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, did he discourage that too? I mean, he was wow. like, oh no, that'll be good. I, it was the strangest dynamic. And I mean, now in retrospect, I mean, I feel like, you know, I mean, a, a doctorate in psychology is probably pretty equal to law school. Like, I can't imagine that I actually was going to bomb out in psychology yet do well in law school. Like, I don't know. It was just yeah, that's. That's so weird. Well, I mean, now you know that 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 was just his own stuff. (laughs) That was his own stuff. (laughs) Well, again, you know, I guess it worked out. It worked out that it kind of pushed you in a different direction and you seem happy with where you are. I don't know. We'll get to that. (laughs) But you know what's interesting? I wanted to be a psychologist. And then I said in college, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to counsel people and they're not going to listen to me anyway. And look where I ended up. <laughs> I was going to say, right. Yeah. They're really listening now, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So, and you know, you, you quickly learn once you become a divorce lawyer that you're, you're not really doing a lot of law. You're doing handholding. You're doing psychology. Absolutely. So you really are a psychologist, Elise. Yeah, okay. I'll just pretend that. I mean, I joke, don't you feel sometimes like you are a life coach? Yes, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of that in the work that we do with people who are divorcing. 
Oh, absolutely. I, I don't, if you're not, if you can't do that, I call it emotional intelligence. Yeah. If you don't have that emotional IQ, I don't think you would probably be very good at being a divorce lawyer and probably wouldn't enjoy it much because, you know, that you don't have the skill set. Like things would be going awry all the time and you wouldn't quite know why. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I think emotional intelligence is probably the most important skill a divorce attorney has. Like the rest, I feel like you can learn, you know, like skills, you can learn trial skills, you can learn mediation skills, you can learn all the rules. But if you don't have that emotional IQ, you're kind of doomed. Yeah. Do you think that that's something you can teach someone? I mean, I would like to think yes. I mean, because I feel like I've tried a lot with my own children to be teaching emotional IQ and really helping them like develop a growth mindset and really helping them like, you know, how can they like eavesdrop on their own thoughts? Do you know what I mean? And how do they kind of control what their reactions are to things, you know, really stepping back and, and you know, analyzing what's going on in your head. And I, and so, yes, I do think, I mean, I, I feel like I've watched my children develop in those areas. Absolutely. Yes. Well, I was going to point out that they're young and their brains are still developing. So what if you have an associate who has a fully developed brain? Yeah. You know, and there's personality types, right? Like there's, I mean, I do think, and I don't know about you, but I mean, I feel like I have grown a ton as an adult, you know, in, in learning things. I feel like with various coaches that I've been exposed to and people that I've worked with have really helped me develop in areas that I was probably lacking in or, you know, kind of having like blind spots about. And so I do think you can learn. I think it's a process though, and you've got to kind of be open to the learning. And I mean, you know, I always talk about like turning that mirror inward inward, and, you know, really putting it on myself and being open to that feedback. You know, I, I do think that a lot of learning can take place. Have you ever seen somebody who was totally closed off from that level of self-awareness that you just described and completely did a 180? Have you ever seen anybody like that? I can't think of anybody myself. Yeah, I don't know that I can think of somebody like that off the top of my head. Um, I mean, I feel like those people that are totally closed off like that, I mean, that to me is such a sad, sad way to be in the world, you know, because I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like there's so many things I can learn. I mean, you know, just every day there's something I can learn to improve how I'm looking at something or, you know, really kind of help myself be able to, to see things in a more productive light, you know, cause it's so easy, or at least it is for me. And maybe I'm just like got my own head issues, but I mean, you know, that mean girl in my head can really play a nasty game and, you know, being able to tone her down. I mean, I call her Eloise, but I mean, really, oh, she has a name. <laughs> oh, absolutely. She has a name because she sometimes is really sassing me and I need to like kind of call her out on it, you know? And so it's easier to me if she has a name. So is that what you meant when you said to kind of listen to your own thoughts? Are you listening to Eloise when that's happening? Yeah, for sure. And the mean girl. 
And I have to ask myself, like, you know, is what she's saying true? Like, you know, is it just some nonsense? Because I mean, my Eloise talks smack a lot, like, and she'll say stuff that's just not true. And I'm like, Eloise, like, that is not true, you know? And so, you know, really having to call her out on it and, and not then just absorb whatever negative self-talk I might have. But when did you start to become aware of that in your life? Um, probably around, I mean, I'm like, I don't know how old I am. Gosh, how old am I? Um, I think I'm like 53. So (laughs) probably around in my early forties, I probably really became aware of, you know, I don't know, just my own limitations and, you know, really trying to grow beyond what my natural limitations were. Do you think there was any event that triggered it? Like, what, were you getting divorced around then? Yeah, I think my divorce had a lot to do with it because, um, I mean, I definitely think at the time, you know, when I was going through the divorce, I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, I wasn't working. I was a stay-at-home mom. He was the sole breadwinner. There was a lot of stuff going on where, you know, he was not like being forthright about a lot of things. And I mean, I feel like I could have fallen so easily into this kind of victim mentality of, you know look at him. He's doing all this, like, you know, poor me, you know, and I really, I mean, I'll never forget sitting in a parking lot in a subway in Minnesota, right before he and I were going to a meeting to meet with both our lawyers all together. And, um, and he like kind of fessed up something and I was like, well, no, duh. I'm like, of course I knew that, you know, like, what was it Elise? No, but just, <laughs> yeah, it's just financial stuff. But I was like, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going to spend my life like dealing with this and being dependent on this. And I was like, you know, I'm going to figure out how to get back into the workforce and earn circles around this guy because I am not going to have him jerk my chain for the next 18 years. Like that was not going to be my life. And so I think then and there, I kind of made a commitment to, I need to, you know, be the best self I could be in this process. So, I mean, it's taking a long time. And obviously I, I don't mean to say I, I, I don't have a ways to go still, you know, but um, I've well, never done. We're never done with our growth. No, we're just like a good pie. We're always baking. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, there you go with those food references again. <laughs> so when did you, did you go to law school right after college? I did. I just took one year off in between law school and college. I mean, college and law school. So then when you got married, it sounds like you left work and we'll figure out the timing. You'll tell us when when you were a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, I, I practiced law. I mean, I, you know, went straight from college. Then that one year off, that's where I met my husband. And that one year off, I worked at a law firm where he was a law clerk at this law firm. Then I went to law school. Then I worked for about five years. I clerked for a federal judge for two years, then worked in a large law firm in New Orleans. And then I quit to stay home with our kids. And at the time, we just had the two kids. And then we ended up having two more. Um, and I think I quit in 1998. So I was home for seven years by the time Hurricane Katrina hit and then, you know, was home for a couple more years post Katrina and then went back to work. Um, you know, once we 
got to Minnesota and kind of got situated. Then I got my license back in Minnesota and started working again. So when you decided to stay home, was that a joint decision? Did you, you know, tell me what your thought process was about that? Yeah, well, it was, I mean, I kind of felt like I was doing it as a way to save my marriage in many ways. Like I felt like um, my husband at the time, he felt really threatened, I think, by my career. And so, um, it, or at least that's how it felt to me. And and at the time, you know, we had my grandmother living with us. So we were paying like 24-hour care for her. And my kids went to private school in New Orleans. And I was like, I can be my grandma's care and educate my children. Like my, like my entire salary was going to these other things. And so we definitely sat down and talked about it. And I think we thought it might, you know, just bring more calm to our family, you know, for me to be at home. And, and I loved it. I mean, I loved, loved, loved being a stay-at-home mom. And I mean, and I loved homeschooling my kids. Like, I mean, it's something that the kids and I have really some great memories of homeschooling. And um, I don't know, we just, we really enjoyed, you know, spending that time together. I mean, but in a way, it's like that was kind of the downfall of our marriage because the kids and I became really close. And I think David really became um, almost like an outsider in the home. And it was, you know, I mean, there's a lot, you know, that there's a lot more to it. There's a, you know how it is when people divorce. There's a lot of things that go into it. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, it, it just is. I mean, I definitely from doing what I do for a living, I think yeah. you get a really interesting perspective of humans and human yeah. nature, human behavior, and things aren't always that simple. Right. So when you stayed home, did you anticipate that at some point you were going to go back out into the world and resume a legal career? I did. Yeah. I assumed, you know, kind of like um, once all the kids, I mean, after we, you know, we had those two more babies, I kind of assumed once that littlest one was in kindergarten, you know, or of kindergarten age, all the kids would probably go back to school and I would go back to work at that point. I mean, it wasn't something I thought about a ton, you know, but it definitely, I mean, finances were always pretty precarious. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot, I think, for one person to be the breadwinner, especially of a family with four children. I mean, that's not a small family, you know? Yeah, that's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids. Yeah, for sure. So how did you feel when you were going back to work? Were you excited? I was pretty excited. I mean, it was hard though to get back into the workforce because I would apply for jobs and I got told so many times, you're overqualified. Like we can't hire you as an associate, you know, like you clerked for a federal judge and you, and I'm like, I obviously haven't worked for a decade. Like I'm expecting to start all over. Like it never occurred to me how hard it would be to get back into the workforce. So like, if I had to do it all again, I would have kept one foot in the workforce in some way. Like, you know, whereas I really checked out of the workforce fully for that decade. And, um, and so once I got my job in Minnesota, I mean, I was really grateful to get my job, but it was definitely a process. And, you know, it was, I mean, it was really disheartening to see how hard it was to get back. And I think once I got out here to Washington and then started my own firm, I mean, that was a real driver for me in starting my firm was 
we started our firm virtually and I was really dedicated to bringing women back into the workforce, women who had had babies and wanted some flexibility in their work. And so, um, because that was the other thing was going from being a stay-at-home mom to, you know, working 60 hours a week in an office. I mean, that's a big difference. And, and I was, you know, really involved in a lot of the kids activities. I was like president of their swim team and, you know, the football mom and all kinds of different things. And so that was a bit of an adjustment, you know, dealing with all of that. Did you feel like you had traded teams or something? You know, there's like the working mom debate, stay-at-home moms versus working moms. Yeah. And I have to say, like, I'm not a huge fan of that, you know, debate. I think we women kind of need to um, come together and really support each other in our decisions that we make rather than attack each other. And so, um, I agree. I, I, yeah, I try really hard not to, you know, kind of be in that position where it's, it is like a debate or that, but yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a real, um, I mean, when you are a stay-at-home mom and especially a stay-at-home mom with a law degree, like a lot of people, you know, kind of treat you like um, you maybe, you know, aren't as competent as you are. And I mean, I, you know, and they act somehow like, you know, what you're doing is kind of like second class work. And I mean, I didn't feel like what I was doing was second class work. I mean, I felt like, you know, caring for my family and homeschooling for kids was a pretty busy endeavor. I mean, I stayed really busy and, and you well, know. I think anybody who thinks that's not easy, they should try it. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, having Sydney for the weekend <laughs> and that's only one kid and, you know, she's pretty well behaved is like, wow, there's people that do this every single day. <laughs> And they have more than one. <laughs> oh my gosh. I loved your weekend with Sydney where you were posting things. I was dying laughing. It's so <laughs> true. Thank I mean, you. Yeah. It gives me a bird's eye view for sure. Absolutely. And yeah, with four, I mean, it's, it's really different, you know, than one. I, I mean, think that's a very nice adjective. <laughs> That's putting in the nicest way possible. Yeah, it can be a real challenge. And I'm glad you brought that up. The you know, I don't I don't mean to say stay-at-home moms and working moms are versus each other. You know, I've I've heard that I've heard there's can be different perspectives there yeah. on both sides, but I don't think that either one's easier than the other. It's just different, different challenges. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I think that everyone's got to kind of make the decision that's right for them at the time. And, you know, things change and what your children need, what your family needs, you know, there's just, there's a lot that goes on. And I think women are kind of some of the most amazing, badass humans that, you know, they're able to navigate all that. And hell yeah, definitely. We keep it all together. Oh, big time, big time. So you probably have a, an interesting perspective when you have a case where there's been a stay-at-home mom and she's now expected to go back out into the workforce because the parties are getting divorced. And there's always that debate, well, what can she do? You know, the husband will always say, oh, she, she, she has a law degree. She can be making like, you know, 300K in a year. But you've actually been in that spot. So yeah. what could you 
what do you think about that? Like, wh- how do you perceive cases like that when you've got a stay-at-home mom who has to now go find work? I mean, I, I really feel like my role is to really educate, you know, that woman and help her to understand what is realistic and what does she need? Because obviously you and I both know you're not going to go out and earn $300,000 in the first year. You know what I mean? Like, even if you go and start your own firm, I mean, if you do earn $300,000, I mean, you're working a hundred hours a week. So, you know, your children are likely going to really suffer, you know, unless somebody is there to pick up all that slack. But I think empowering women and educating them around the finances, because I think so many stay-at-home moms, I mean, they have their own mean girl in their head where they've kind of been made to feel like somehow they're not good with money or they can't manage their finances when in all likelihood, they haven't had a ton of opportunity. You know, a lot of times, and though it's stereotypical, but a lot of men handle that, you know, and if they're the primary breadwinner, they might be handling those finances. But I think bringing women to financial neutral experts and getting them to really understand what it's going to look like. And I mean, really helping them understand the short term, like what is this going to look like for a year? What is this going to look like for five years? And what is it going to look like for 10 years? You know, really helping them get to a place where they can be making those wise decisions so that, I mean, because one of the things for me that is so important for our clients is that on the other side of divorce, they are financially secure. I mean, because that's terrifying. Yeah, I... Well, where you weren't in that situation, because were you were already working, or did you go back to work because of the divorce? I went back to work. Um, well, I went back to work before the divorce, but I mean, I knew the divorce was coming. You know, we had been needing a divorce since before the hurricane. So, I mean, I went back to work, but I, I was definitely not earning what he was earning, like not even close. And um, you know, so I mean, I definitely was fairly dependent on him, you know, initially and really, I mean, made it my focus to become undependent on him, you know, in short order. Oh, I like that. Undependent. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It was not for me. I mean, this whole, you know, like emailing him, are you going to pay child support this month? I mean, come on. Like it's just old and obnoxious. Yeah. And when we were joking earlier about how we're psychologists, I I really think that that's probably the more important part of what we do that really helps people. Because yes, we know the law, but we're really helping people navigate a new life, navigate their way to a new life. And I think that has less to do with legal rules and more to do with important things like you telling your clients to go talk to a financial expert, someone that can help guide them and figure out a plan for exactly. year one, year two, year three. That, that's going to be so much more valuable to them Absolutely. than someone who can just calculate what their alimony should be. Right. Well, and calculating what your alimony should be and then collecting that alimony are two very different things. You know, and you can find yourself, and I know you know this, I mean, where people are in constant court battles because, I mean, 
sometimes people, they just don't pay what they're supposed to pay. Let's just face it. I mean, and yeah. there are a bazillion reasons for that, whether it's mental health issues, whether it's real financial issues. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. I mean, and I look at my own situation and I mean, my ex, I mean, if we want to look just at court documents, owes me so much money, but it's, I, I will never get it out of him. You know, like he doesn't have it. He, I mean, there's, there's issues and I'll never fully understand them all, but it doesn't matter. You know, I, I made a commitment to be able to co-parent as successfully as possible with him and earn circles around him. And so that's what I did. Well, good for you. I was going to ask you if you guys were amicable of your friends yeah, we do. I mean, we have a pretty weird dynamic in that. Um, I mean, like he's our our resident pet sitter. So like he comes out to our house and takes care of our pets when my husband and I travel. Um, when we lived in our house in Seattle, I mean, he was he could come there and stay in our house in Seattle. Wow. We'd go stay somewhere else. We had a house um, up on the water off of Whidbey Island. So yeah, we have really managed to, I think, co-parent as peacefully as possible, you know, with all the struggles that we have had. Sometimes you just have to let things go. You do. I gotta take my own damn advice here, but yeah, you gotta just let things go sometimes. Well, and it's just not the kids cross to bear. Like the kids are just innocent victims of bad adult decision-making. And like, it's just not right. And I mean, I'm a firm believer in, in that it is the conflict that damages children. And so it's not the divorce. It's not living in two homes. It's not, you know, sharing holiday traditions. It's the conflict. And so I really didn't want to play that game. And I just, and I don't at all. And um, I mean, we recently had to bring our youngest to college. So like we became empty nesters this summer and my ex literally came here to our house. He was going to pet sit while we were gone, bringing that child. And we all sat together and had dinner. I mean, my ex, my current husband and my son, you know, as his last night here together. And I thought, I mean, if this, this is a success, you know, I mean, being able to like, have dinner and all be there with my son. And, you know, I mean, if I could like wave my magic wand, would I have planned that where, you know, he would be there, but he happened to be here. And I thought, well, I'm not going to have the dinner and not invite him. Like, you know, so um, it just is what it is. And I think that's wonderful for people that can do it. And if people can't do it, I don't know. I don't want to be judgy because I've never been in that situation. Sure. But I think sometimes it says more about them. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I know that there are some situations that are unforgivable. Oh, for sure. Well, and there's violence issues and, you know, I mean, all of the things that we see. But I know as an attorney, I mean, I often ask my clients just really point blank. I'm like, do you love your kids more than you hate your ex? And if you do, start making decisions that evidence that. And, um, and I think that, you know, for me, that's been a really telling question. And, you know, when, when things come up, I have to remind myself. I'm like, my kids' psychological wholeness so far exceeds any animosity I have towards my ex that I'm 
always going to, my intent is always to put that child's needs first. How old are your kids now? Um, we have kids from 19 to 29. So, I mean, we have 19, 22, 24, 26, 27, and 29. Do you remember all their names too? <laughs> that, that's a long list. It is. Well, I'm, I hope that they appreciate that. I hope that they look back on that experience and they recognize that. I think they do. I do think they, you know, I mean, because they're old enough now, they all realize, I mean, you know, that there's been dynamics. They know that I'm the one who has really supported them all. So, I mean, they all know like that's kind of been a thing. But I mean, they all know too that I'm going to encourage them to work towards their dad's strengths and figure out what those strengths are and, and really build a relationship based on those strengths. Your current husband is pretty understanding though. He's oh. letting him come over and dog sit. I literally have the most amazing progressive human as a husband. I mean, he is, uh, I mean, people in my office joke. They're like, they call it the Doug experience, you know, trademark. Like literally my husband is a saint. Well, as soon as you said that he would stay at your house sometimes, I'm like, aren't you afraid he's going to snoop around? <laughs> what? I mean, no. What's he going to find? Like, I mean, yeah. no, not at all. Not even. I don't so. know. <laughs> would you, if you were in his house, would you snoop? I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't think so. No, I, I probably wouldn't want to find anything like too weird. Do you know what I mean? Well, so. I guess we all know what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'd like to think that I would take the high road and I would not snoop. I yeah, I don't snoop. think I would snoop, definitely. And I and if he snoops, he snoops. Like I don't care. I mean You're right. got, what's he gonna find? Yeah, I've got nothing to hide. Like, I mean, I'm pretty much an open book. I always have been. So I mean, if he finds something interesting for him, great. I mean, whatever. Yeah, good luck. Well, let's talk about your law firm too, because we don't even have a lot of time. This went by so fast. I'm really intrigued by your business model, which you and I have talked about before. And you've been on Wake Up Call Live before talking about how to go virtual because you were way ahead of the curve. You did that from the beginning. A lot of us only did it as a result of COVID, the pandemic, and I think there's more and more people doing that now, but you were doing it before that. So tell us about that. Yeah. When I started the firm in 2015, I started virtually and it was really solely selfishly initially because I wanted to be able to go do all the things I did as a mom. And this whole idea of sitting in an office in downtown Seattle from like eight to six did not suit that at all. Like, how was I supposed to go to football games or, you know, go to lacrosse things or swim team things. So I started virtually knowing that, I mean, I just, I mean, I was very focused on my family from 3 p.m. till 9 p.m. every day. Like that was, you know, really hardcore family time, like driving them around, going to things, cooking dinner, eating dinner, you know, any kind of homeworky help stuff. So from three to nine, I really needed to be available to my family, or at least it felt like to me. And so I knew that I would work. I mean, I got up early. I tend to be kind of an early bird. So I'd get up super early and work at like four in the morning and work, you know, before they got up. So 
you know, I would, I needed that flexibility and I realized how critical it was to me to be a great mom and a great lawyer that I wasn't feeling like I was sucking in both roles. And so I started a virtual firm to really help other women be able to do that where they could have that flexibility. And now, you know, we've grown precipitously and everyone has that flexibility. I mean, I mean, every single person in my office. And um, you said part of that was because of the difficulty that you had finding work. So did you just say, screw it, I'm not even going to work for someone else. I'm just going to start my own firm. Well, no, when I first passed the bar here in Washington, I did work for other people. And um, and both places I worked, you know, we kind of did like negotiations about me working there more full time, full time. And um it it always felt pretty exploitive to me. Like, you know, they kind of all operate under that model of, you know, like they wanted a five-time ROI on their people. And it was like, you know, I'm gonna literally be working, doing all this work and then, you know, get paid like one fifth. And I was just like, no, like I'm not doing that. And so I did, yeah, I then just said I'm gonna start my own firm. And I've really bucked a lot of the, um, like the typical coaching models on what it must look like to be successful. And um, because we do, I mean, we are, our firm is very strongly entrenched in a positive culture. And so that is really important to me. Well, you're very positive. I think that's like the first thing you really notice about you. I've never had a call or had any interaction with you where I didn't feel that energy from you. Thank you. I, You're I mean, welcome. I, Are you not aware of that? Um, well, I mean, I definitely consider myself a positive person. I mean, I tend to be, you know, optimistic about things and try to really look for the strengths in, in situations rather than, you know, the problems. Um, and so I think in owning a law firm, I mean, I, you know, like so many law firms just suck at to work and yeah. I just did not want to create one of those. Well, I have always, when I first started practicing law, I just felt like there were a lot of attorneys and I hate to say this, but at least the ones I remember, they, it was mostly women. They were just so nasty and they were so miserable. Yeah, And I was like, and they were people, they were older, like they had been practicing, you know, a long time. And I'm just like, why are they like that? <laughs> you know? And I think they're just unhappy. You know, I think just that's how unhappy people are. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what they put out there into the universe. And Absolutely. I never, ever get that vibe from you. Well, that is interesting because that unhappiness, I mean, I've been kind of on this little like passion project recently around um, fair play. It's a book written by Eve Rodsky and it's all about like how to bring gender equity into the home. And it literally stemmed from, you know, one of those like Facebook groups that we belong to where it's like so many women attorneys and these women all just hate their lives and hate their husbands. I mean, the seething rage these people have for their spouse was really stunning to me on several times you would see these posts and it would be hundreds of comments about, you know, how miserable it is. And it just, it breaks my heart to think that 
there's these women who are highly intelligent, successful attorneys, and they feel like they are bearing all the load at home in this way that is just horrible. And I'm like, how do you hold that type of resentment and desire for a person like in the same heart? I mean, you can't like these marriages are just miserable. And so I have become kind of like an evangelist for fair play. And really, I, I mean, I would love to bring fair play to like every single lawyer's home because I mean, we have hard jobs, like, and we should be happy in my mind, like, and joyful. Like we, we earn decent livings. We, you know, are intellectually stimulated. I mean, we often, I think, feel a calling to help people and we're able to do that. Like, I think it's a very, I feel honored to do what I do. And, and I also though know that I do have this partner at home who is like, so amazingly supportive. And like, I mean, the thought of me carrying resentment is just foreign, you know, like, cause I mean, he's that type that's, I mean, he can't do enough to move our family forward. You know, he's always but, helping. But what if he wasn't, you know, like what if he was needy and always wanted attention, wanted it to be about him and, you know, was resentful of the time and effort and energy that you put into your business or, you know, maybe resentful. I don't know what your situation is. If you make more than him or, you know, maybe you being in the spotlight, all all the things we always hear about. Well, I mean, I think people have to really decide if it's worth it. Do you know what I mean? Like if it's, I I wouldn't be in a relationship like that. You know what I mean? Like personally, I would rather be single. (laughs) Than be dealing with that. And I mean, I think that, you know, I obviously divorced my first husband because of many of those things. Like it was, it was a real struggle on a lot of different levels. And um, I mean, finding a partner who is truly an equal partner and who's comfortable in their skin and your success and your whatever, I mean, because I'm definitely much more, um, I mean, I just have a much bigger personality than my husband does. And he is, instead of being resentful or whatever, he is my, my number one cheerleader, you know? And it's, I mean, the difference when I look at my past relationship versus my current relationship, I mean, it's unrecognizable, the difference. I wouldn't have been as successful as I am without the support of my husband currently. That's wonderful. Well, I hope that he listens to this and he gets to hear all that. Although I'm, I can't imagine you haven't told him that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I definitely try to show him gratitude for what he does because, I mean, he is amazing. Well, I bet you that he appreciates you too. Probably. Yeah, I would think so. I think he does. I bet if I interviewed him, he would say some more things about you. <laughs> you would say I'm a hot mess though, because uh, hot, hot though, <laughs> hot mess. <laughs> you can't just be a mess. You got to be a hot mess. That's it. Keeps him on his toes. It stimulates him. <laughs> exactly. You know how it is though. Like law firm owners, I think are we tend to be. You know, we have ideas. We kind of pop around a lot of things, and 
he definitely is much more systematized. And, you know, like if we could put him in a role in the law firm, he would be that person that like brings order to everything. Whereas I'm like, oh, whatever, let's do this. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of how I am too. But I think that's sort of a more creative brain. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs have that kind of brain because that's the kind of brain that's probably better suited for a job, you know, which I'm saying like in quotes is a nine to five thing where it's more defined. Yeah. We don't need that. You know, I would want that. Yeah. Miserably. Could you imagine going to a job right now? No, no. Oh God. Never, 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 never. Yeah. No, I would panhandle somewhere before I would go get a job. (laughs) I just, I don't, yeah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't actually have a boss where I had to do things the way that they wanted me to do it. I could be an independent contractor. Maybe I could. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I, it would be, it would be a tough sell for me to go get a job for sure. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're sort of at the end of our time together and I feel like it went by so fast. You've had such an amazing life. I, we didn't even barely scratch the surface. Yeah. Well, it's been fun talking to you. I mean, I didn't realize we would talk about new Orleans and Katrina. I love that. So now we've got to plan that retreat. Yes. Like jazz fest. I mean, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's funny. A lot of times I'll, interview somebody and they'll ask me in advance, you know, what are you going to ask me? Do you have a list of questions? I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to ask you. I can't give you the questions and I never know where it's going to go. So that's, so there you have it. Like I like to keep it very natural, organic. Um, Well, you were saying, cause you have, um, do you have a podcast? I do. I do. Well, I do too now. The Maximum Mom podcast, which through the Maximum Lawyer Group, which I love interviewing like women who are moms, lawyers, business owners. You know, I call it the the ultimate trifecta. And then I also have started a podcast called Parenting Buoy, where it's more local here to Seattle. We interview experts and it's a lot focused on parenting issues and you know, obviously with my whole brood, I would say parenting is, you know, near and dear to my heart. Oh, I love that. It sounds like you're doing really good things for the community there. Well, thank you, Elise. So that is Elise Bowie, Elise Bowie Family Law in Seattle. I'll have links to your website, your social media channels, and your both of your podcasts so people can check that out. Thank, so thank you, you so much. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.